zero faster pace to get there. All right. Everybody doing good? Uh, You must be the group not camping uh, before we start school back. All right. Good to have you in God's house. Um, Let's let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, let's just jump in, would you? Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You began that invasion in the person and work of Jesus. Extend it now via your Holy Spirit into our hearts and our minds through uh, your word. And so, God, we come acknowledging that we must decrease so that you might increase. God, we come acknowledging that unless you illumine our eyes, we are not getting anything out of uh, this sermon today. And so, God, would you come and make us capable of understanding your word, of digesting it, and through that, producing good fruits in our lives that bring you much glory, God. Would you come do supernatural stuff here? Get me out of the way. Get my brothers and sisters out of the way. And for any friends that are here who have not yet believed the gospel, would you call them out of darkness and into light? Big stuff here. All of it bigger than us. None of it bigger than you. Uh, We come just begging and petitioning you that you would uh, be gracious to us and just pour out an abundance of your presence that we might know you and we might worship you and we might love you more. God, do all things sovereignly for your glory. We pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Amen. If you got a Bible, uh, let's open it to Mark chapter 7, 31 through verse 37. And uh, you may say this is a really short passage. He's probably not going to preach long. Wrong. Uh, We're here, all right? And so, uh, but I'll maybe tell this story. Uh, When we were in Europe... Um, and we've been all over the world, whether it's Africa, Asia, one thing is constant all over the world, and that is fried chicken. Like people, it doesn't matter where you're at on the earth, people love, you drop chicken in deep fried oil, and it's, it just brings people together, you know what I mean? And so we've been in, a- I love, in Asia, they just, they put some spicy stuff in KFC, and the KFC in Asia is like 10 times better than America, in my opinion, okay? And in Europe, like if you don't like certain European foods, one thing you could find is fried chicken, and it's really hard to mess it up. You know what I mean? And our kids got so used to this. Deacon, one of his first words over there in English, we would be driving by somewhere, he'd be like, hey, Dad, look at that chicken spot, right? Which meant we need to pull over, and go try a little of that deep fried goodness, right? We have this spot, and I don't know, I, I've never seen it out in Colorado, so you may not know this, but there's a place in Oklahoma, and it's regional. I know it's in Texas too. Do y'all have, have, have y'all been to Chicken Express? Does anybody know what Chicken Express is? Um, I, I see that hand, that's good. That's good. You probably have carotid arteries, you should get that checked. Um, and so I love Chicken Express. Chicken Express has this tactic that they did that got me in. Here's what it is. They, Chicken Express is awesome. They got catfish there that's better than any catfish in La Plata County. I don't know why La Plata County can't do catfish, but separate rant, okay? Chicken Express, they got catfish going on, deep fried jalapenos. They, they got the chicken. And you can go in there and you can order 20 strips at Chicken Express. And here's their tactic. They're just going to throw three extra in there because they love God, I think. 
you will open it up and begin to count and realize. And at first when they did this, I was like, they got some teenager in there that's doing common core math. They got no idea about, I ordered 20, the brother threw in 23. Come back, and you, you, most of the time, they are always throwing a little extra chicken strip there, a little extra there. I started to come in and say, they are running some sort of lottery system. of th- Like the manager, I, does anybody know what I'm talking about at Chicken Express? At the one at our hometown, they intentionally throw in, ex- McDonald's will give you half a sauce. Chicken Express is dropping extra strips in their basket. I'm going there every time, right? It's this tactic that there's, here's what it is. They give you more than what you ask for. And, or like, this is the thing about this passage. There's more in this chunk of scripture that meets the eye. Don't be deceived. Like, you may be asking for, okay, I read this on its surface But there's more than you asked for here. There's more than expected in the passage today. And so uh, I I want you just to step back and act like you've not heard it and and maybe try to encounter it afresh for the first time. With that in mind, let's look at verse 31. Then he, Jesus, returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, Deca meaning ten, polis meaning city. We've talked about this already because you remember uh, the naked demoniac that he delivered was on this side of the kingdom. He's from this side of the wrong side of the tracks. The Decapolis was ten Greek cities where the Gentiles lived. We mentioned a couple weeks ago with the Syrophoenician woman, he went up to Tyre and Sidon as an anticipation to prep his boys to do Gentile mission work. He begins to open their eyes that this thing is not just for the Jewish nation, which scripture says just delivering Israel is too small a thing for how big a God that we got. And God begins to crack open the disciples' eyes to see unclean people as being made clean. So he's been up entire inside in which this is going to be important in a minute, is modern-day Lebanon, right? Lebanon. So he goes up to Lebanon to the Gentiles, and what's he doing there? So uh, he goes up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. doesn't mean they're specifically those cities. Then he comes back around, does this horseshoe thing, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember, the west side is where the Jews are. The east side is where the Gentiles are. This is going to be real important for next week's sermon, so I'm not going to get too much into that. But he returns there to the Decapolis. Verse 32. This is, just, this is just straight Bible here. 32. They. Underline they. If you've got notes, uh, if you're taking this, just underline they. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. That's a very strategic word. And they, underline they, begged. They begged him. To lay his hands on him. So here's here's the first point. Let's pause here. They brought him. Who is this they? They. They brought him and they begged. Some nameless servants. Some nameless servants. Nameless advocates. Nameless invitees. 
nameless beggars, nameless people who invite people to Jesus. Think about how much, how many times in our world, if people don't get credit at your workplace, they aren't working. How many times in church, if people don't get appreciated all the time and catered to and applauded, they're not serving. That they're only giving money if they put their name on the side of something. Yet the Bible's going to come and say, some nameless servants are going to beg Jesus and it's going to move the heart of God. One thing about this passage that gets me is that God's heart is moved by petitions and prayers. Like there's things that the Bible's going to say that you have not because you ask not. There's certain things that happen in the kingdom that God has ordained for them only to come about through prayer. Do you believe that? That church, we're not going to be able to do all that God wants us to do as a church because we have great speakers or great deacons or great awana or great strategy. As good as those things are, and we should have great strategies. We should have great deacons and great house churches. As good as all of that stuff is, there are some things that are only done in the kingdom because we go to the throne of God and we beg. And God says, I see that weakness. Let me flex and show my strength. You think Tuesday night prayer meeting is just another church activity? It's not a church activity. It is our power to take over the kingdom of darkness. Come on. So we, we come to these people and it says they're nameless servants. Um, I know Jenny and Jacob love the Old Testament. So I just come into this. A beautiful part about what's happening here in this passage is something that's happened in the Old Testament before. In Genesis chapter 24, I don't have enough time to jump into all this. If you've ever studied Genesis chapter 24, um, Abraham sends a nameless servant to go get a bride for his son, Isaac. And theologians will talk about this nameless servant is a forerunner of the Holy Spirit who goes and captures the bride, the church, and brings it to Christ. But we don't have any time to get into the parallels between the Holy Spirit and Genesis 24. But I will say that these nameless um, servants, whether in Genesis 24, are a picture of the Holy Spirit. Because we are not naturally given to give God all the credit, we want a little bit of credit for ourselves. We want to say, I want people to recognize me and what I do. I, I need somebody to know my name. I wonder, I, like, let me say this about Awana, because I'm thinking about Awana because I did the thing yesterday or whatever. But I wonder how many people have come to Christ because some church folk who nobody's going to know their name went into Awana and shared the gospel with a bunch of students. And nobody's ever going to know that Cubby's leader's name. But they got in there and they served. And students come to Christ. I wonder how many house church leaders, nobody knows their names, but they invited neighbors over for meals and their neighbors came to Christ. Most of the spread of early Christianity, we have no idea who spread it. There was no figurehead. There was no ma massive leader. There's no celebrity pastors. There's just nameless servants. Let me, let me tell you a story. So uh, you may not know who Charles Spurgeon is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon is considered one of the greatest preachers that 
has ever lived. Um, to this day, uh, his nickname is the Prince of Preachers. Um, and you can go back to his sermons today and start to read his sermons and realize there is a depth at which the Holy Spirit enabled him to preach the word. He, led, he had a mega church before anybody, they even had amplification in London. And his sermons have continued to lead thousands of people to Christ hundreds of years, now almost 200 years later. A lot of people don't know about his conversion, but he mentioned his conversion in his preaching over 280 times. He says that he was absolutely in a place that we would use words like depression. I quote, I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. His mother came to him at 15 years old, like a lot of mamas do, and said, boy, you better get into church. So mama tells him to go down to church and told him which church to go to, thinking this, has got a, this is a good church, this is where you need to go. Sends 15-year-old Spurgeon to church on Sunday morning. Full blizzard hits that Sunday morning. Snow everywhere, just super covered in white. The, the snow gets so rough that he doesn't make it to the church that his mama sent him to. He pulls off to the side, he's walking, and goes into a primitive, simple, small church. As he walks into this church, the minister who was supposed to preach that day couldn't show up. Because the weather was so adverse. So what they did is they just selected an older gentleman that was in the church and say. Hey, can you give the message today? Simple man, uneducated, gets in the pulpit, no notes, no preparation. And he goes to a text, Isaiah 45, verse 22, which we're going to get in Isaiah later. And the text reads, look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. And the preacher just looked across. He read this text he looked across the step and he said, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at him. Look at what he did on the cross. He died for sins. He rose from the grave. Look, look to Christ. And this is like, if y'all ever been in an old school church, they call you from the pulpit. I don't do that as much unless it's just to make fun of you, okay? But back in the old school, this guy sees Spurgeon, 15 years old, in the crowd... And said, you look awful. <laughs> you ever been in one of those churches? It's awesome. Um, you look awful. He said, young man, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Spurgeon said that in that moment, he was so delivered and set free and released that he never recovered from it. That as he walked out in the snow, each piece of snow that hit him felt like just refreshment and heaven's blessing upon him and he was set free. Here's the thing. No one knows who that preacher was that led Spurgeon to Christ. Nobody knows his name except heaven. Are you okay with that in your life? Serving God faithfully and nobody knowing your name. Not becoming Instagram, Facebook, TikTok famous. 
just being faithful and heaven knowing exactly who you are and exactly what you've done. He, the prince of preachers, was brought to Christ by a nameless servant who knew how to plead with people. Like in our text, they knew how to beg. Verse 33, look at this. Get back into our text. Um, and taking him aside from the crowd privately. We've already seen examples of Jesus bringing him to people publicly. Taking him aside privately, he put his fingers into his ears and spitting touched his tongue. All right, so first thing about taking him aside is, uh, and maybe make a note of this, God wants to do things in me privately that will become public and cause people to worship him in astonishment without measure. Let me say that again. God wants to do things in you privately. And whenever God does that, it always becomes public. There is no private religion. If God gets a hold of your heart, your life's changed, it's going public. God wants to do things in you privately that will become public and lead other people, what we're going to see at the end of this text, to worship God in astonishment without measure. Jesus takes him aside because someone petitioned him to do so. I wonder who God is going to set apart because you're going to pray, because you're going to petition, and because you're going to beg. Jesus took him aside because somebody petitioned. And I love this, is that God's heart can be moved by petitions, things that he only does through prayers. Now, 33 through 34 gets, let me finish 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphatha, I nailed that. That was awesome. No idea. I think Jacob did better. Um, that is, uh, be open. I don't know what you said, but don't go there. Um, Ephaphatha. Nailed it. Okay, good. That was much better. That is, be open. Okay, so Jesus relates to him in ways that he will understand. This is not a wet willy, okay? That was my first. I got the tongue thing backwards, and I was like, okay, what is Jesus doing here? You know what I mean? Like, ears first, then the tongue. So Jesus comes up and puts his fingers in a guy's ears. And then he spits and touches a guy's tongue. And then he deep sighs and he looks to heaven. That's the sequence of actions that we see here in this text, correct? Which seems curious. Because whenever people say, what would Jesus do? I don't think they ever mean this. <laughs> like, what would Jesus do? I think he would come in and just jab that guy right in the ear. He would get vertigo and then push him down. Um... What is Jesus doing here? Think about what this guy is experiencing from Jesus. Like switch perspectives. Because you are seeing, hearing, and speaking. And you're looking at it from that perspective. Flip the script and look at it from his perspective. Friends have brought him to Jesus. They are begging Jesus and pleading. He with his eyes, he cannot hear. Jesus comes up and identifies what the problem is to him. He touches the man's ears. He gets it. Some of the Jews of this day thought it was a demonic thing. Some thought it was a part of the curse. I think even as Christians, we would say that people's bodies not working correctly is a part of the fall. And Jesus is coming and saying, I see what's wrong here. Then he spits 
which is something you do with the tongue. And he touches the man. So he's identifying that you have a speech impediment, which I'm going to get to that word here in a minute. Then I love this about Jesus. He deep sighs. Uh, if your spouse deep sighs, that's not a positive thing. Okay? <laughs> like you're doing something, like you're driving the way that should be, you know, cars should be driven, and they deep sigh, you're about to have a fight. Okay? Jesus looks at the brokenness of the world, and he deep sighs. Like he's bothered by it. The man could read non-verbally what Jesus is saying. It breaks God's heart that our bodies and our souls are like this. Just like we see Jesus a complete and whole human. When he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, he weeps. Jesus is emotionally free in ways that some of us are not. He literally comes face to face with the brokenness of the world and he deep sighs. Have you ever gotten like, you live in Colorado, you get this. You ever just kind of see where our world is and just get bothered? Like, that's a healthy thing. That's a Jesus thing. You see injustice and evil, people destroying themselves and destroying their families, and just deep sigh? Can, can we read it on you? Or are you just stuffing that stuff so far down, nobody even knows that you've got a problem with the world? Jesus touches his ears, spits, touches his tongue, and he deep sighs. Then he looks to heaven. So that the man, he identifies the problem, but at the same time, he identifies where the solution is coming from. He identifies the problem, but looking to heaven, he's identifying where the solution is coming from for a man that can't hear him speak. Then he says this word that I'm not even going to try again, okay? But you don't have to be a speech pathologist to understand that this word has a lot of labials. For instance, it takes a lot of the tongue. A lot of Hebrew is guttural. Like, for instance, one of my favorite uh, grocery stores in Israel is Hetzel Hanam. It's all in the back, and you almost got to, like, choke on somebody to say it. This word, apephathath, is all up here in the front. It would have given optimal opportunity for the man to lip-read. And we know that the man had a speech impediment, which some people would say that he has at one point was able to hear and lost his hearing. Some say maybe he was deaf all the way through and just had developed some sort of form of, this is pre-ASL, uh, American Sign Language, right? Like he just figured out some sort of moaning or thing to where he could communicate himself. Jesus comes and he, he connects with the man in a way that he can understand. This man is obviously a visual learner, so Jesus gets hands-on. Jesus relates to him. Here's one of my problems about the church right now. We have good churches in America. We have some good churches. They're not all bad. Just probably most. We've got some good churches, but there's so many good churches that are disconnected from their culture. So the good that God is doing in the church is not seeping into the culture and affecting music, media, politics, and different aspects of our culture. It, our churches have almost become monasteries where we're cut off from the world instead of taking the gospel to the world. Do you hear me? Jesus has great stuff in him 
and he gets near and touches the needs of the man. Church, we've got to make sure that we're connected to our community. That the good stuff that God does here is never meant to stay here, but we've got to relate it in relevant terms to our community. Are you tracking? We are not a monastery. We're a mission. All right? And so Jesus opens it for him. Opens him up. Listen to what it says. Looking up to heaven, he deep sighed and he said, uh, why do I keep coming to that word? That is be open. It's a roadblock. 35. And his ears were opened and his tongue released. And he spoke plainly. He opens what is closed. I know some of you in here are closed. You, your, your tongue and your ears and your eyes, they all work, but you're closed. God calls you to do something, you shut it down. I, I'm not doing that. I am closed off. Jesus is in the opening people up business. He's in the releasing people business. Closed things become open at the touch of Jesus. Now, I don't know. Uh, theologically, some would say that he downloaded when he spoke plainly, like he downloaded it from the matrix or whatever, from heaven, that he was able to speak a language, having never learned language, being deaf from birth. That's not uncommon because if you look in the book of Acts, the church is able to speak languages that they had never spoke before. I don't go full charismatic here, but it's in your Bible, okay? They're speaking languages they didn't know, and God gave it to them. That's not beyond our God's capabilities to give people languages they wouldn't otherwise have. Or if he had heard languages and Jesus just repaired and restored what had been lost through his hearing. I don't know, the text doesn't get into that. But at the very least, we could say a couple things. Babylon is going in reverse right here. Confusion is going in reverse. Furthermore, something I think we could say from Mark's explanation, from Mark 1.1... In his thesis statement about this book, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This passage, connected to that thesis statement, is to tell you that Jesus is the Son of God and he's beginning the kingdom. 115 says, at that time, he said, the, king, the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, right? So he said, the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming in the person and work of Jesus right here. The kingdom invades through the king at the front of the army. And in his kingdom, sin and the effects of the fall have no place at his table. So we see the kingdom coming in this passage. By the way, I find it fascinating the word that he uses. Here's what I mean. This, this um, story of healing the deaf mute man is not in any of the other gospels. Mark alone chooses to teach us this. The word that he uses in this, if the first word was hard for speech impediment, is unique. Magi lalos. Magi lalos is the word for speech impediment used here. In all of the Bible, that Greek word, magilalos, or magilalon, depending on its context, is only used twice in the Bible. The whole Bible, right here, is one of them. The second one is in the Old Testament. Now, you may be saying the Old Testament's in Hebrew. Get that. But the, 
the Jews used a copy of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Most of the disciples probably would have known both. They would have known the Greek and the Hebrew. And so the Greek Septuagint used Magilalon or Magilalos in one other place. We've got to go here. This is unbelievable. This is the Chicken Express. There's more here than what, than what you think. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 35. Ty, this is when we should just cut the camera so the people attending online have to... I'm just joking. Um, 35 of, chap, of Isaiah. This whole Isaiah, if you've ever read the Old Testament, he's been on this long rant about how their sin and their evil is creating systemic evil in such a way that God's going to have to going to have to bring judgment. And he's just been railing against the evil that is in God's people and in their culture and the nations around them. And he's just been talking about judgment and judgment and judgment and judgment. And then we get into this like this like in the midst of of justice there's grace. Verse 1 of chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. So this is obviously a shifting of out of the judgment to God doing some sort of restoration process. Some sort of new thing. The glory of Lebanon. What were we just talking about with the Syrophoenician woman? Tyre, Sidon is Lebanon. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. I think the Syrophoenician woman saw the majesty of our Lord. Would you agree? Verse 3, strengthen weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Uh, This is a biblical way of saying stretch and get ready. Like, you know, before you do physical activity, you got to stretch. The Bible saying uh, you should stretch. All right, get get ready because God about to do something. That's verse 3. Verse 4. Say to those that have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And with recompense of God, he will come and save you. Jesus' name literally means Savior, Deliverer. So in the midst of vengeance and recompense, there's coming a Savior. Okay? Verse 5. Then the eyes. So talk to me about this, this one that's coming. Talk to me about this kingdom. What's that going to look like? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the death unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute. Right here is the second use of that word. Only two uses is right here in Mark. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. The tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. For the waters will break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert and the burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water and the haunt of jackals. That's western Colorado where they release the wolves. Where they lie down, the grass will become reeds and rushes And a highway shall be there. And it will be called the the way of holiness. And the unclean shall pass not over it. And it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. See, God saw us coming. No lion shall be there. 
nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. There shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. The redeemed and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing, sighing, deep sighing shall flee away. Isn't that unbelievable? Jesus has fulfilled Isaiah 35 by making the Magi Lalas sing for joy. But that's, that's all of us, right? That all that we would want to say about God or we want to serve God, we just can't in our own ability. God has to come and open our hearts that we might praise Him and preach Him and love Him because we're just closed. That's awesome. Verse 36 is the problem. All right. 36 says in Mark chapter 7, 36 says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. Like, Jesus, you just healed this brother's ability to talk, and then you're not giving him permission to speak. The result is completely predictable. He charged them to tell no one, but the more Jesus gave, charged them, the more commands Jesus gave, the more zealously they proclaimed it. The more Jesus gives commands the more awesome they are at disobeying them. Welcome to church. Right? And they were astonished. I love this this phrase. Astonished beyond measure. Astonished beyond measure saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. What I, what I think is so awesome about this, tell no one, and the more charged that he, more commands he charged them to say it, the more zealously that they spoke it, is that we are so good at sin that if Jesus says, don't speak, we proclaim it more zealously. And if he charges us to say something, let's just throw it out there, something like the Great Commission, all of a sudden, we get real quiet. Like, that's our hearts, right? That if he says, don't say anything. Do you, do you believe that God's sometimes going to tell you not to speak? Don't say anything. The timing's not right. Whatever reason he has. Here we go just bumping our gums. He's going to come at the end of Mark and say, preach to everybody. Proclaim. You've got a green light to let loose the gospel. And the church is going to battle throughout the ages, keeping their mouths shut. A lack of zeal, we could say, sometimes happens around the Great Commission. Amen? Why? Because we're just great at sin. We're unbelievably great at it. doesn't matter what Jesus tells us to do. Our wicked hearts find a way to disobey. If not for God's grace. So here's the thing. And maybe this is the posture I want as we worship in this house, as we do things in this house. It says that they were astonished beyond measure. There's no measurement to talk about how astonished they were because Jesus does all things well. The actions of Jesus produce worship. And that's the heart I want. 
I want to see how Jesus does things so biblically. Isaiah 35, I want to see how Jesus uh, moves in my life. And I want to be astonished by that such that I worship without measure. Seeing how well Jesus does things. I never want to lose that. That constant looking to Him. Um, I, I've talked about this before, but I, I think it's, it's worth mentioning. It's like sometimes our kids, we get really disappointed because we pump screens in front of them or we just do awesome stuff that we were not able to do as a kid. And then we take them to something that we think is awesome and they're like, eh, right? Like there's almost like this, they get inoculated to awesome, right? And so kind of everything is boring. Um, and so sometimes the best thing we can do for our kids is kind of like take some things like out of their palate, out of their experiences. And actually what they need to do is do some hard things and not have continual access to entertainment as the world would make them make available to them. I know this is countercultural, so I'm walking a line here. Because pretty much iPad should be raising your kids, right? Am I right? Um, like we, but maybe television shouldn't be raising our kids. This is like, for me, it's like, I just noticed that as I could remove things from my kid's life and allow them to be challenged by hard things to do, it's so healthy for their heart. Then whenever they're faced with something that's truly awesome, they're in, right? And so we have to pick and choose some of the things that we allow them to experience so that we create a mind and a heart that's ready for the awesome. Let me say it to you like this. Have you... I took our, our kids to a theme park. And theme parks are awesome. You got rides and stuff. And we don't really do that kind of stuff. And we, we try to limit how much we put them on the TV or the iPad or the computers. And when we do, it's usually like educational. It's like, oh, you want to play on the iPad? Here's some math. And they're like, I think on the second hand, I'll go play outside and chop wood. Um, but it's awesome when you give them that and you take them to a theme park and they step in. And they begin to look around. And when I took them to the theme park, I didn't even tell them what we were doing. We just, we just got up in, in, into this theme park. And you come up into the place, and then all of a sudden, they start to see the outside. They start getting hype. They're just on the surface. They haven't even rode a ride yet. They're just seeing the outside of it, and they're, like, excited. Then they start to go in, and they see things dropping and things swinging. And they get into this kind of risky place of, I want to do that, but I also kind of don't. Right? Because I didn't wear a diaper or nothing. You know, like, it's too much. But then they go around the theme park and they start saying, Oh, Dad, look at this thing over here. And they start to drag you to explore the whole spot. You know what I'm talking about? And you, you start having to try to even judge some of the things. Are you tall enough to even experience this? Or are you going to fall out and, like, we got a real long explanation with your mother um, of what happened here? And don't you want that? Don't you want them so like pumped and excited that they're dragging you deeper into the park to go to it rather than showing up being like, oh yeah, I've, I know this. It's, it's not. I've seen this online. Right? Here's my thing. is I think that some of us come to the God's word like that. Some of us come in and we say, oh, I know John 3.16. I've seen that. Oh, I know the gospel. I know the cross. Oh, I, I've even heard about him he healing the deaf. There's no astonishment. And I don't, I don't think that you realize that for some of us in here who are adults, your constant entertainment from the world 
is stealing your astonishment in what really matters. Except you ain't got a mom and dad that's taking the iPad from you. If we want to be astonished beyond measure, I think maybe we need to like clear our palate and just step back and let it hit us fresh and maybe turn some things off, mute some things so that we can really listen. So I asked this question to myself. It's, when was the last time I was astonished by God's love? For me. I mean, I'm astonished all the time that he loves you people. But for me, that he loves me the way the cross says he loves me, willing to die for my sins and to go to the grave for me. When was I astonished? We used to have a thing on my old staff. Um, we had about eight college students on our staff. We had like four full-time and then um, some part-time staff. And we had this thing. We had a rule. You could come back next year, but there was only one requirement if you wanted to stay on our staff and serve more than one year. If you wanted to serve on our staff more than one year, we had this one rule. You had to re-up on this every year. We would always ask the question, when's the last time the gospel made you cry? When's the last time the gospel broke your heart? Because I don't want to be in the trenches with a bunch of intellectuals who it's just information doing church. I wanted to be in the trenches with people that the gospel was wrecking their hearts. And if the gospel hasn't wrecked your heart and you're in leadership here, you got no business being in leadership. And so if you want to come back and serve on our staff another year, you got to tell me the last time the gospel broke your heart. The last time, when's the last time the love of God made you astonished beyond measure? Blind, deaf, mute. This is how God, in His Word, describes humanity without Christ. Blind, deaf, mute. Existing, stumbling around, having a form of life, but not getting it. Blind, deaf, mute. Any one of us, when we get saved, is unbelievably experiencing a supernatural act. So when was you astonished last that God loved you so much? I heard a quote, and that maybe I'll end here. When I look at my sin... I don't know about you, but when I, I know my sin better than I know your sin. When I look at my sin, I am astonished that I could even be saved. But when I look to Jesus, I'm astonished that he could even possibly lose me. When I look to my sin, I'm astonished that I could be saved. But when I look to Christ, I'm astonished that I might be lost. Because he's that powerful. As a nameless servant once told Spurgeon, I will tell you, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Be astonished. Let me pray for you. And I'll invite Mike to come. Friends, brothers and sisters, would you turn your eyes to heaven? To the author and perfecter of our faith.
Would you look to the cross and there see your sin, as Colossians said, your trespasses and your debts nailed to the cross? Would you look to the cross? If you're joining us online, would you, would you join with us in a posture of prayer? And would you look to the cross? And see, your uncleanness, your filthiness, your brokenness, your handicap there. Would you look there and be astonished? If you're here today and you have never with your heart gazed at your sin nailed to the cross, would you in faith look there now? If you've never looked Jesus full in the face, would you look there now? The scripture says that all that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you look to Christ and call upon His name and ask Him to save you? Isaiah teaches us that's what He came to do. If you're here, or if you're online, I want to ask you, with such a beautiful Savior as this, why would you stay closed? when He's come to open and He's come to release, why would you stay closed? Would you let Him touch you and open things that only He can open? I don't know who needs to hear that, but it's for you. I'm going to pray over you and then with the best we can do with the voices we have, and the hearts that God's put in us, we're just going to worship God in as much amazement and astonishment as we can muster. Dear Heavenly Father, Yours is the kingdom, and You are the King. We thank You for sending Jesus who died upon the cross for our sins, that we might be released, that our tongues might be loosed to sing Your praises that our hearts might be freed. And so God, we come having heard what your word says about who you are and what you do, and we just come in faith asking you to do it again. Do it in us. Do it through us. And do it for your great glory. Father, teach us to keep our eyes upon Jesus despite the wind and waves. God, teach us to keep our eyes upon the cross and to see our sin nailed there, that we are eternally astonished at your saving power. God, we ask that, we plead that, we beg that for us and our community, and we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and worship with us?